Hello, and welcome to Conflict Theory. Every time I get the same face from Chloe. Every time. Actually, at, we, we have a guest with us today who has a really good voice. My hello, welcome to Conflict Theory. Adam, can you say that for us? Hello, and welcome to Contact Conflict Theory. Close <laughs> Contact Tracy. <laughs> Contact Tracing 2020, coming to a theater near you. But uh, Today's episode, we're going to be talking about the devil's lettuce. The very, very dangerous substance people choose to put in their bodies for a few minutes of joy, but is actually killing them all the while. That's right, we're talking about marijuana with the active ingredient THC. And I know for a fact that when Adam talks about THC, he's going to use the full chemical name and never abbreviate it. Is that right, Adam? I mean, I could talk about tetrahydrocannabinoid <laughs> all the entire time, but realistically, I think I'll that. just refer to it. <laughs> so this drug has a long history. It's a, it's a plant. I call it a drug because we schedule it as a drug, but it is a plant. It's been used for religious reasons, it's been used recreationally, and it has a long history of use medically. We have known about this drug by we, I mean humans, not me personally, for 5,000 years. It comes from Asia, mostly the India area, and it just started getting exported, eh, probably because of capitalism at some point, became popular in the West. More specifically on that Western history, it started gaining in popularity after the Mexican Revolution in 1910, when the United States started to receive a bunch of immigrants from Mexico. And around the 1930s is when it really became racialized and the movement to uh, make it illegal uh, came in full swing. So throughout this campaign to get it illegal, you see nothing but just terrible racist rhetoric. And it wasn't just against Mexicans, it was against black people as well. And I wrote down some quotes here, but I'm not gonna read them because they're just that bad. But just know this is the most overt 1930s racism you can probably imagine. And we even see that while it was illegal, uh, illegalized using the marijuana spelled with an H, interesting fact, the Marijuana Tax Act of 1936 one interesting fact I found while researching this is that marijuana was actually legalized in the United States in Alan's lifetime. And I'm going to ask, Alan, do you remember this? You probably don't remember it, but you know about it. I, 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 I know that it became legal after I was born, yes, but I was like four. So no, I don't, I, I don't remember that. Three, I think I was. <laughs> yeah, it, the Marijuana Tax Act actually went to the Supreme Court and was deemed unconstitutional so making it legal for like six months in America, Congress quickly got into action and made it illegal again. That's where we get the Controlled Substance Act. They made a legal alter, alteration, and I guess it's fine now. But it still was definitely passed for being racist. Like that was the reason that avenue was pursued. And I'm going to look to the panel to find other reasons because I read several articles and they all sort of come to the same conclusion as that. And we see that in practice, it's still being uh, enforced in the same way. You see throughout the 21st century, black people were four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana related crimes than white people were. So both its enforcement and its intent seem to be racist. Now, the inspiration for today's episode it was just legalized, or they voted to legalize it in the House of Representatives for, by a fairly wide margin. That happened last week. And we have to consider like the arguments against it now. And we see a few. There's some the, the good old fashioned arguments that stem in capitalism. Well, people are less productive when they are high. And that's been a common argument uh, coming about. Other arguments are like, it's a gateway drug. And the other one just Another thing I hear a lot that isn't even an argument, it's just kind of a plea to think of the children. Thought about them, let's legalize it, but whatever. And which will lead me to like sort of the big question is, obviously we should legalize it, but why are we legalizing it? And I'm positing that we're not. We're probably not gonna legalize it. It's just political circusry as usual. 
And this is probably to get Georgia. It's probably a ploy to try and win Georgia. If the Democrats are willing and able to pass marijuana, it's going to end up making the Republicans in the Senate look bad when they don't pass it. It's just politics. And you can continue to expect to be living in the American hellscape that we are in now. But maybe I'm being pessimistic. I'd like to think that's the pessimistic view on it. But with that, we're going to go into some soapboxes. And let's go ahead and start with Chloe, because we haven't heard her voice yet. Hi, yeah. Um, wow, there's a lot to unpack there, the way that you, uh, you set that up. Um, okay, so I think that when we're talking about legalizing a recreational substance like marijuana, there's kind of like two arg two sides to the argument. There's the medical side that I'm sure Adam's going to be able to speak much more to. And there's the legal side um, in terms of kind of like, why do we create laws around for like goods and necessities, like FDA policy, you know, the fun stuff, what everyone wants to talk about. Um, I think that when you talk about like, you know, the racialized history of enforcement, a lot of the reasons why perhaps some legislation around marijuana was created the way that it was, was clearly for obviously serving particular agendas. But I think that when we're talking about why you would or wouldn't legalize a substance, really there's like a couple of key questions you're asking. One is access to this good and the benefit of the public interest. Two, are the side effects or you know like harms the general harmful effects of the substance severe enough that the average medical user can't be expected to take on the burden of the risk and three does the medical science like the actual doctors who have been who would be in the uh, position of prescribing it do they believe that there is a use case out there like are there particular diseases or are there particular situations where they are asking you to treat it so do you trust the experts do you trust the people and do you trust the substance those are kind of the three questions we're asking, right? As far as um, asking, do you trust the, let's start with uh, the experts. Doctors have for a long time suggested that one of the key reasons for the very high rates of both overdose deaths and suicides across the United States is due to the opioid crisis. When I say the opioid crisis, I mean specifically that prescription painkillers that are known to be much more severe and much more addictive than a substance like marijuana are often prescribed following surgeries, following significant blunt trauma injuries, following various other procedures that would need like pain relief as like just a basic, you know, for the good of living uh, prescription, they will often prescribe opioids, which are incredibly addictive, and which are causing a large number of deaths. And many experts would tell you that one of the main benefits of being able to legalize cannabinoids or cannabis on a prescription level is that you would be able to have it as an alternative that is both less addictive and more commonly understood how to moderate. Marijuana has been part of our pop culture for a very long time. Benefit people don't necessarily understand. Not only has it been in all of our best rap songs generally since Snoop Dogg took over in the 90s, but it also also is a substance that uh, other countries such as uh, the Netherlands or Jamaica have really led a lot of immigrants from there and or tourists who go to there have really led a lot of initiatives that have a very powerful political impact in the United States, wherein understanding what a blunt is, is something you could expect the average everyday user to know how to use. Knowing what a single dose of marijuana is, is fairly easy to measure. Whereas one of the problems with opioid painkillers is that since you are in pain and you know you don't want to be in pain and these drugs are very complex and sometimes very potent even in small physical form that the human brain just doesn't immediately register as, oh, that's a lot of it. Like, no, it's a small pill. It's not a lot of it. They will occasionally end up over uh, intaking those medications, which is what kind of leads people down this destructive addictive curve. That's why the experts like it, and it segues nicely into why the people like it, right? There is clearly a popular push for this. Many states have begun to legalize marijuana. If you want to talk about like U.S. constitutional law, the reason that the House has formalized this vote is largely because the states are already telling you that there is a high number of people, especially because particularly populous states like Florida, like California, have in the past made this push to legalize cannabinoids on the local recreational level. When the largest population centers of your nation and when, you know, the states, the people are telling you that something should be good and that they want something, it's the government's obligation and democratic system to consider it. And that's what we're doing right now. 
So what about the substance itself? Like, why are we still scared about it? You mentioned that it's considered a gateway drug. That's largely bad science. Again, I'm sure Adam can talk better about science, but like the gateway drugs aren't actually a thing. If people are seeking non-socially acceptable behaviors, they will find them. Even if you illegalized all drugs and were somehow able to make it effective, which you can't and which it isn't, then you would still have people just engaging in like risky car races and trying to crash into each other. People who have risk-seeking behavior will generally seek out risk-seeking behavior. The nature of the substance, not really that important. And marijuana in particular, is not addictive. That's something we've known since the 60s when it was a very popular drug of choice in the United States, right? Like we've always known it hasn't been addictive, but administrations like the Nixon administration and the Reagan administration were happy to forward opposite narratives to that because it helped with their conservative base who didn't like the hippie movement and the beatnik movement and who particularly didn't like the civil rights movement, all of whom found themselves for political convenience allied with people who wanted to legalize it, man. That narrative has continued to stick into the modern day and it's never been true. It's never been a gateway drug. Um, but secondly, if you want to just talk about what the drug itself does, yeah, it's probably dangerous to drive with. However, we have no issue legalizing alcohol, which is much more dangerous to drive with and which has more dangerous long-term effects. It can, if you overdose on it, if you were to take too much of it, can cause slowed heart rates, which for people with low blood pressure could cause danger. Again, alcohol does this, but it's also much less dangerous in this regard than opioids, which is the situation that we would be prescribing it in. From everything from potential CTE patients or football players who just want their head to stop hurting, to military veterans who have blunt force trauma injuries, to even people with severe anxiety issues who don't want to have to be stuck at the mercy of Pfizer in order to be able to get their $600 anti-anxiety medication to be able to walk into a crowded room. It makes a lot of sense for most people's interest to legalize marijuana, and honestly, whether or not this is being done for the convenience of a Georgia runoff, and I agree with you that the Senate is not likely to consider it, McConnell has said not, it's an inevitability. Just like legalizing gay marriage was inevitable, just like prohibition was inevitably doomed to fail when it was coming to alcohol, I think that the prohibition on marijuana is also inevitably going to be doomed to fail. It's just a question of when. All right, Alan. You know, being a Colorado resident, I've had a chance to vote on the legalization of marijuana. And, and when it first came on the ballot in 2012, I actually abstained on it because I wasn't sure if it was a good idea or not. You know, I, I know that if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. I am not pleased with where we've gotten with the war on drugs, and therefore we need to try something else. But I wasn't convinced that legalizing it was uh, was an option. Well, so, or was a good option, I should say. So, I have uh, come to be a firm supporter of it with the, uh, you know, just looking around Colorado and seeing a, a lack of negative effects for the most part. Uh, here in Lakewood, the town I, I live in, it was actually um, still illegal locally and, and it was on the ballot in 2020 and I wholeheartedly voted for it at that point and it passed overwhelmingly, uh, even though it had failed a couple of times uh, prior, but it was like 62, 38 or something. It was, it, it was pretty overwhelming. So I, I have come to be a supporter mostly because uh, of the you know lack of negative impacts essentially I, I, I was <laughs> saw something on on Facebook a while ago uh, I think it was uh, uh, Wyoming I guess uh, somebody was talking about it for 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 Wyoming and there was lots of posts on here you should see how it's ruined Colorado and all the terrible things it's done in Colorado and I'm sitting here saying have you been to Colorado when's the last time you visited because you know I don't really think it's uh, any more I mean obviously there's there's stores around and things but the the actual use and, and abuse of it if you will uh, no more evident than it was before now a couple of exceptions to that one is uh, both drunk driving and impaired driving due to marijuana seem to be up somewhat in Colorado even though the national trend is uh, fairly stable um, so that makes me nervous and you know obviously you know smoking anything be it be it marijuana be it tobacco, be it, you know, uh, um, firewood, you know, uh, women in third, third world countries suffer from uh, lung cancer a lot because they're, they're breathing a lot of firewood smoke. So, you know, the s smoking is, is, is cancerous, but, um, you know, people make that choice with, with, with other things that are legal. And so therefore, why shouldn't marijuana be legal also? So I've been, um, you know, sort of on the fence about it for a while, but now I'm, now I'm a firm supporter just uh, in large part because of the libertarian streak in me, right? If, if something is not harmful, then it should be allowed. You know, um, Chloe, you, you had your, your paradigm that, you know, is the availability in, in the public interest. Well, really, it's, I, I would take that a little bit 
I'd skew it a little bit and say, is, is availability not in the public interest, right? It's only if it's not in the public interest that it, that, that it should be banned. Whether it's in the public interest or sort of neutral, um, I think, you know, we, we, we should allow things. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's where I am with it. I'm a, I'm a supporter. Of, I'm not a user, but I am, I am a supporter of it. We believe that, Alan. I, I have never inhaled, and I, 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 and I have a story for that. So anyway, go, go ahead, Adam. We look forward to it. Well, right. he's, he's, a, he's a good bit better than Bill Clinton in a lot of ways, you guys. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> of course. Well, I mean, uh, all sorts of jokes planned here, but uh, just want to say I'll have one marijuana, please. Uh, but <laughs> we'll go from there. So uh, just coming from a little bit of a background, I have a bachelor's degree in neuroscience, had a lot of emphasis on marijuana policy and, and uh, practice <laughs> back during my time debating. And now I'm getting my PhD in neurobiology and neuroanatomy. And so a lot of our emphasis comes directly on uh, things like psychopharmacology and particularly how do drugs impact the brain? How does it uh, impact developmental cycles and a variety of other different things? Things. And uh, the science is mixed when it comes to marijuana's impact on, on developing brains. It's not particularly good, but a lot of the hubbub about uh, uh, decreases in intelligence and reaction time and sperm counts, a lot of these things have really been overblown. Uh, we need to be able to treat it uh, with respect as, of, uh, of course, all drugs. You want to make sure that if someone's using the drug, that they use the drug. The drug doesn't use them. But I mean, that kind of gets us around to some of the fundamental questions about how marijuana can be used in society and why it should be legalized. I mean, as, as Chloe was saying earlier, the, the anti-anxiety and, and uh, allodonic abilities of marijuana are substantial. It's, uh, it's one of our best uh, palliative treatments for people with cancer. The anti-memetic effects, the abilities to be able to, uh, to fight off nausea and a variety of other different effects, almost unparalleled for the amount of, of damage that the body is suffering, which is negligible overall. And I mean, this kind of stuff not just from a medicinal level, but from a, a mood modulatory level, a variety of other different things when it comes to basic standard of living, are dramatically increased underneath this condition where if someone makes the choice to be able to engage with this, uh, then there are very little drawbacks overall. But if we want to get into a little bit more of a macro question about how is the, the lack of, of legalization impacting our communities and reason why this, uh, this MORE Act that we're discussing today doesn't go far enough is a question of how this is impacting our more oppressed and minority communities. We recognize that there is a substantially higher incidence of people having the book thrown away, um, thrown at them. Uh, if, they, if they're you know, a black or non-Hispanic white individual and being thrown in jail for 12% longer on average and having six and a half times higher, uh, more likely to be to receive a federal sentence for cannabis possession than, than in a white person. I mean, for example, taking directly from uh, the, the more bills justification from the US government's website here. I mean, not only that, but you have the opportunity to be able to take away an enforcement mechanism from, from the police that use these laws to be able to target and instigate continued issues within these communities, uh, ways of being able to, to crack down on perhaps undesirables. Having these laws on the books allows police to be able to further harass, stigmatize, and separate people of color from, from themselves and put on a extremely powerful and long-lasting criminal record upon them by removing this criminalized element, by legalizing it, not just decriminalizing it, which does not legalize it. This allows states like Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, which is still not entirely legalized, to be able to have their own laws in the books that continue to segment and punish arbitrarily people of color. And this will this has a tendency and a power to be able to create these, these cycles of imprisonment, these cycles of poverty. And this is one of the easiest and fastest ways to be able to overcome these major issues. So if we legalize this today, this is one primary way that an adolescent is not going to find themselves in a position to where they can't get Pell Grants in the future, they cannot get loans in the future, and a variety of other major mechanisms that we ask each other as a society to be able to engage with to be successful. If we take away the possibility of punishing people for making choices that we don't agree with because they don't actually harm themselves, I think that we're doing ourselves as a society 
a generalized good. Now I can go into all of the various medical benefits and the various like and the various science of everything, but this is what it eventually comes down to. There are no overdose deaths from marijuana. On average, it makes people's quality of life better. And by legalizing, we take away a major mechanism by which systemic racism is considered is continued in our society. I don't see any real downsides of this. And I'm not even going into the drug war or into South American eco-narco politics. That's a very important factor here as well. But realistically, for the American people, this is a win across the board. The people who are not interested in this, I mean, there are people on their way out or their tobacco or alcohol companies, realistically. So, I mean, those are the basic basic precepts, and that's uh, that's that's kind of where I'm going to end for this part. All right, thank you, everyone, for the contributions. This is the part of the show before the ad break where we pretend to have an ad break, and I will <laughs> and I will plug my band at Six Feet Away Band on Instagram or Facebook. We're able to get the same app for both of them, so that's professional. Yeah, check us out. Chloe, do you got something you want to plug? Sure. Um, I'll plug The Legend of the Table at thelegendofthetable.com. We're an LGBTQIA-focused streaming game of Dungeons & Dragons. If you ever want to learn how to play the tabletop RPG or just want to see awesome queer voice actors and actresses elevating their craft, you should join us every Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday night at 9.30 Eastern. All right. And Adam... I didn't warn you about this, but you got something to plug for us? I'm going to plug Chloe's D&D group. That sounds sweet. <laughs> All right. What about a random product? Random product? Uh, yeah. The 538 on Politics podcast is, is pretty good. They're going to need your help. Claire Malone's been been let go. That's not cool. So uh, check Wait, them out. Wait, what? Really? Yeah, seriously. It's sad. Yeah. Why do our guests, Alan, always want to plug our competitors? <laughs> i don't know if we're plugging them they just uh, a group of all old white dudes just got older and whiter and dootier so i don't know about that that's maybe not I mean, they, got, they got perry big slam <laughs> i guess that's fair that is they do have perry big all right well we'll see you all after the break welcome back to conflict theory hope you enjoyed your short break So we're mostly in agreement on this panel. We're all pro-legalization, but I did want to talk about maybe some of the health effects a little bit. Because Chloe, uh, in her soapbox, uh, you were bringing up a lot of information that, a lot of good arguments, but really arguments that function more in the should we legalize marijuana medically. And Mm -hmm. that's, I feel like is even more settled law. Like, yeah, definitely we want to legalize it medically. And Adam, you had some of those arguments too about why medically you would want you would want to introduce legal marijuana. But going to some of the like specifics of like maybe the side effects, like Chloe said that it's not addictive. Like it is addictive. It's not physically addictive. It's not a and that's not even a term we use anymore, but it's not addictive in the same way as like opiate, opioids or alcohol. And when compared, yeah, marijuana is better and less addictive, but anything can be addictive. So that's an issue we have. Alan was talking about just the problem of smoking anything could be bad for the lungs. And we do see like studies of, especially with maybe atypical cases where some people, when they smoke marijuana, they do become very violent. I think it was linked to anyone with any level of schizophrenia and some other mental conditions, when they smoke marijuana, they're more prone to violence than even with alcohol. We see some issues like that. So yeah, I'd say the reverse is true most of the time, but you're saying there are some, some, some particular circumstances where mar- marijuana interacts with some circumstance, some physiology in the body to, to cause them to be more violent. Yeah, and that, that's more rare. Malcolm Gladwell got a lot of grief for like even giving any uh, credence to those studies. But it does seem like there are some concerns. So maybe yeah, I think generally yeah. the reverse is true, right? I, you know, I was talking to a policeman about it one time, and he's like, you know, if you're if you have somebody who's 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 high, they're typically laid back, and you know, they're they're easy to deal with, as opposed to a lot of drunks that get violent, and mean, and and problematic. 
I mean, realistically, the the studies that focus on marijuana and schizophrenia, I haven't actually engaged directly with uh, questions of increase in violence for people with schizophrenia, but there are some epigenetic studies that speak to prolonged usage of marijuana for adolescents that have a genetic background in schizophrenia uh, that you might increase the chances of them developing the disease en masse. Like actually, they going from like, a, like a lower percentage chance of them developing it when they're teenagers and have yet to develop it to a higher percentage chance just of taking a look at the population data. Although the science is a lot more subtle than the fact that LSD is a lot more likely to be able to evoke those changes and those epigenetic impacts uh, being the, the chemical impacts on your genes, the regulation, like the, the, the specific diet change, right, of your bowl of genes. Uh, marijuana is going to impact that, but nowhere near to the extent that LSD would. And, and I think that we do ourselves a disservice by, just as Alan was saying, is, is focusing on these extremely rare circumstances where somebody who's already in a, an extreme minority of the population is having an adverse effect to something. I mean, these are something to that deserve to have the light shone in it as you're focusing, Paul. But realistically, by granting it credence that's that provides more harm than good overall i think that we do stand to be able to focus in particularly on the on the addictive properties of of a chemical of any kind of drug as well as the, the cancer association and so i think that we have a lot of interesting ground to cover about like how do we want to regulate addictive properties in our society but realistically i think that we need to, to key in on the questions of cancer so uh, one of the major ways that cells kind of regulate themselves and the major problem with cancer in particular is the, the inability to be able to undergo what we say is regulated cell death. We call this apoptosis. Basically, can a cell kill itself when it needs to kill itself so it doesn't grow uncontrollably and take over your system? And the science is not exactly decided on, on whether or not uh, marijuana smoking is more carcinogenic than it is helpful because we know that, that THC in combinations with its analog CBD are actually pro-apoptotic in cancer cells. They, they stifle cancer cell development and they can help fight cancer underneath a variety of circumstances. And so whether or not prolonged marijuana use is going to cause lung cancer, I would probably say, yeah, you smoke anything for long enough, you're probably going to be in bad shape. But compared to a variety of other things, marijuana may help ameliorate those those conditions and undercut those circumstances. But uh, but that's just from what I've read over the last number of years. If I could just like kind of speak specifically, because um, you mentioned uh, the person who kind of originated this. Um, you're talking about Warnock, right, with uh, the study about like uh, schizophrenia and... Uh, marijuana? I actually read the New York Post article by, uh, not New York Post, the New Yorker article, very different, uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, uh, so, so that I, article references... Mine was secondary, so I don't, I don't remember the original author. Okay, so the, um, what, that uh, New Yorker article is referencing to a particular study that is done by the uh, NCBI, which is the National Center for Biotechnology and Information. It's a division of the NIH. The study in question is by Shweta Patel, Sahir Khan, Spivakumar M, and Pusitev Hamid. I'm not, I, I want to preface this by saying I'm no kind of medical doctor nor an official peer reviewer. However, I have read this study before because I saw it in the New Yorker as well and was like a little bit curious. And looking at the study itself, which is titled The Association Between Cannabis Use and Schizophrenia, Causative or Curative, a, System a Systematic Review. A lot of what this paper is doing is quoting sources from usually like the 1490s or even like the 1930s, very old science, and kind of going from a position of assuming that marijuana is being abused and is harmful, how does it specifically harm schizophrenics? Which I just want to kind of bring up because in science, when you come from a conclusion that is, there's a term called garbage in, garbage out, or GIGO. When you come from expecting a particular result, you're probably going to get that result. And I would argue that that study is maybe not a great one that we should base our entire understanding on, especially when the vast weight of the evidence is on the other side of the same exact issue. Now, when it comes to using specifically cannabis or cannabinoids with schizophrenia, one thing that I have, I can say for certain is that a lot of um, people who are currently using it, I'll use, for example, Florida. There's a company in Florida called Clean Green Extractions, which makes a particular type of prescription um, cannabinoid oil uh, that you use for specifically medical purposes. So we're not talking about recreational purposes. 
they had found that schizophrenic patients who are using this type of cannabinoid will often have significantly lesser effects and even sometimes strange effects. So we think of cannabinoids or THC as being more of a sedative. It usually is meant to relax. It is used to suppress. And the patients who they were observing who had schizophrenia, they claimed then was actually feeling hyperactive, was feeling almost caffeinated, which if you treat schizophrenia, generally one of the advisors is that things that make your mind hyperactive like caffeine are to be avoided just because of the nature of how that illness works. Again, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm quoting specifically kind of some of those sources here. But it seems to me like, again, as Adam's saying, one, don't take one small minority case and bounce it against the vast majority of evidence. But two, even that small minority case is being used more as a political football than it is actually sound science being quoted soundly from what I'm seeing. Okay, and obviously my intent isn't to like say that marijuana is bad. No, 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 of course not. I'm just looking of the many small arguments you see that say that marijuana is bad. Like some of them have some validity. That maybe it could be carcinogenic. Maybe it could have a bad effect in some people. And with that is really more of a jumping off point because Adam was saying we need to regulate it. I want to know what this regulation looks like. What does the new era of post-legalization actually look like? Because it's well, not I mean, it, a free-for-all. I mean, I think that uh, that Chloe or, or Alan can or I can all speak to the status of, of what we see in the legalized states. May that be Colorado, Washington leading the way, New Jersey and Montana just legalizing here. But can, but uh, consistently, it's, it's licensures for those who want to be able to to grow on mass the same way that you would have for very many other kinds of uh, agricultural. Uh, kind of enterprises. There'd be taxes levied from the state, perhaps in the federal level once it's legalized uh, on on these goods. And then there is often a revenue stream dictated specifically by the states that legalize where that money is going to be going to. And people can determine whether or not it's going to be 18-year-olds or 21-year-olds that get access to it. But I believe that in Colorado, we we called it Amendment 64, the Regulate Marijuana-Like Alcohol Act. And that's kind of the way that people have been abiding by it, is that if you're, you're old enough to drink, you're old enough to smoke, we're going to tax it pretty heavily because we want to pay for our schools. And that's that's frequently how it goes down. It lets you own plants, which is a big sticking point for me because decriminalization uh, does not exactly allow you to own plants because if you have over a certain amount, often 30, 30 grams, which is not even an ounce underneath of many cases, you are still going to be running into possible distribution charges, especially state level charges. And so uh, what would average regulation would look like is how do you regulate alcohol? Well, you're probably going to be doing it pretty close to that with marijuana and that's a good jumping off point but uh, do you guys have any other nuance you'd like to throw in on that one well i think like when we're talking about because because paul mentioned that there were you know there are some opposing arguments that have some validity i think the one that at least for me has the most validity is the um effects it can have on developing brains specifically like slowing that process of cognitive of neural development on like a physical a physiological level and that is again the same thing you see from like alcohol but there is a reason why we don't allow minors to drink alcohol anymore like that kind of passes the test I talked about in my sort of soapbox when I was saying that like, you know, hey, is it is it safe for the public to consume this thing? And is the, beyond there just being a public interest for it, is it reasonable to regulate it? Like what are the harms? And I think there are harms to people, especially who are either underage or under the age of 21. So regulating it like alcohol makes a lot of sense. And if you want to talk about like, oh, well, can we even trust 21-year-olds to have marijuana, I think that that's where you start kind of losing the plot a little bit, right? Because if we are saying as a society that you are able to vote, able to be drafted, able to inhale a carcinogen like tobacco, which is both more deadly and usually has additives that are more carcinogenic, meaning more likely to cause cancer and the types of additives. Yeah, and more addictive, right? Nicotine is a more addictive substance than marijuana is. If all of those things are okay for an 18-year-old or okay for a 21-year-old, depending on state, then surely this would be as well. If you think this thing is special, then really it has more to do with that systemic history of them coming from places where brown people are that you are scared of or that they are being used largely by minority communities. And this is a cudgel you have against them. If you take out those two arguments, and I think we can all agree that systemic racism, not a great look. So if we take out those two things, then there's no real reason why you would separate a marijuana um, a marijuana smokable from a nicotine smokable. In fact, the marijuana smokable is probably healthier. Well, here's, healthier. here's my issue with that. Because it kind of treats like the Colorado case is the paragon, but we're really not. 
after Amendment 64 was passed, the arrests of black youth for marijuana possession and consumption went mm -hmm. up because we could only arrest people under 21. They just doubled down on making sure they caught black people under 21. That's the Colorado legacy of legalization. But what problem are you actually trying to solve for in that case? Are you trying to solve for the police disproportionately targeting minorities? Because no, legalizing marijuana will not, in fact, solve that problem. Indeed, nothing short of abolishing the police will. But we've had that episode before. If we're talking about, like, specifically, should we be concerned that rates of arrest will increase? Like, maybe, but that's a backlash argument. You're suggesting that currently there are forces in the system that want to put young Black people in jail and are using marijuana to do it. And that by legalizing marijuana, there will then be forces in the system that want young Black people in jail and are going to use marijuana to do it. Nothing's changed, fundamentally. Maybe there will be a slight increase temporarily because it will be popular in the news and that will make certain police officers who weren't aware they could use the marijuana statute to imprison youth now suddenly aware of it. But generally speaking, in the status quo, like in the world we live in where it's not legalized, they're already throwing these people in jail, often under very suspicious circumstances, using these mandatory minimums that say, oh, you have a certain amount of this particular drug, therefore auto jail. There's no compromise to be had. If that's the system we currently live in and you're saying the change is we will live in it but more that's not a reason to illegalize something my issue isn't so much that it should stay illegal but adam brings up the point that it takes away a mechanism from police to be able to discriminate against black people or any poc but it hasn't functioned that way in the places in some of the places where it's been legalized. So how do we legalize in a way where it actually meets Adam's goal of taking away that tool? Well, I mean, I'm sure that if we take a look at the the laws and the, the actual uh, the amount of jail time, the penalties that people are, are taking on from having a controlled substance the schedule one substance like marijuana ecstasy heroin uh just simple consumption simple possession of that is going to have a much higher penalty than the civil penalty that you're going to be associated with having some alcohol if you're 16 and so on that point alone you're going to have probably less harsh mandatory minimums now maybe the the facts will come in and I'll be wrong on that one uh, but my my best guess is that at the very least you are decreasing the margins the the automatic set-ins that are going to make this so problematic and so harmful on a mass level you are ameliorating that to a certain extent taking some of that power away and that that has got to be helpful for millions of people who are going through these issues um, now we're gonna I mean your narrative Rings, rings clear to me, man. I mean, that sounds that sounds like something would happen. You smell marijuana in the car. You're like, oh, look, they're 17 year olds. Like, oh, you guys shouldn't be like, what? Well, now I'm going to search your car for whatever kind of reason. I mean, that that kind of thing probably happens a lot, and it doesn't sound like that it's probably going to have changed very much here. But I think that the amount of sticking power, how much your life can be ruined because of that, has probably been uh, decreased, probably pretty substantially, by legalizing in these states. And there, there is a value to institutionalization, right? Like, I don't think anyone here is claiming it's a silver bullet that magically stops unwarranted arrests of targeted individuals. But I think that when you have a policy that is being instructed unjustly from the top down, even if the actors at the bottom were going to act in a particular way anyway, having that institutionalization has an effect not only on the way that then those actors in the bottom now have to go to greater lengths in order to enact their injustice. So like a police officer specifically post-legalization, if they want to arrest, say, a specific minority member who is above the age of 21 and did legally purchase marijuana, they suddenly have to meet a higher burden of complexity in order to enact this unjust action, right? Like they have to find some other reason to make them upset. And sure, maybe they will be able to because our criminal justice system blows, but even if that, but they are then taking a more radical action, which is more likely to get noticed by institutions like the media, institutions like grassroots movements, which are the only actors that are realistically ever going to solve for the criminal justice system. Moreover, those police officers have to initially be trained on particular protocols, meaning that there is a hypothetical world, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years from now, wherein by institutionalizing this legalization and therefore dropping the inherent kind of stigma around it, the media narrative, the pop cultural narrative that it is, as you open the show with, the devil's lettuce, and rather it just being like, nah, they got caught with too much Tylenol, man. 
Like if I told you that right now, you'd laugh, right? It's like, what do you mean? I got caught with too much Tylenol. It's fucking Tylenol. If we can get, when you institutionalize something, you make that the dominant narrative. You make that the default, meaning that the longer we live with it, even if it is in the short term, again, possibly going to have some blowback, the longer you live with it, the more normalized it becomes and the easier it is for, you know, your children's children to be like, what, you got caught with like 10 grams of weed? What did they, what they say? You like spent too much time at Walgreens? Like, what's your problem? You know, it's not, it's not going to be a, a, a tool any longer, even if it's not fixed immediately. Yeah, that's, that's probably fair. I just really wanted it to be a silver bullet, you know, and it's not that. Well, so let me uh, chime in a little bit. I, I don't know how many of you saw the uh, uh, Ken Burns documentary on prohibition on P PBS several years ago. Um, I caught it uh, just a couple of years ago when it was kind of on, on a rerun and I was struck watching the, the whole thing, literally from first episode to last episode, I was struck with how closely the war on drugs paralleled the, the war on alcohol back in, you know, the 20s and the, the prohibition era, right? And what happened then? Well, you know, that's when uh, organized crime became a huge thing in this country. And, you know, you get the, the Chicago mob and the Boston, you know, mobs and all of the organized crime that grew out of prohibition, right? And uh, law enforcement's response to that and culture's response to that. Well, so, you know, Adam, you kind of had the, the Central and South America comment as sort of a throwaway in, in your initial um, soapbox. I don't think it's a throwaway at all. You know, I think uh, we have a lot of problems in our, in our society um, as, as a result of that. So, so because of our war on drugs and not just marijuana, um, co co cocaine and other things that I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend being, be, being legalized, but marijuana is part of it. Uh, as a result of that, we have had, you know, uh, organized crime at an even larger level than we had in the States grow up in Colombia and Mexico and, and Central America. And, and now because of that, we have an immigration problem that, uh, that, that causes us to have great political divisions here in this country with the whole build the wall, keep them out, caravans coming, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it, a lot of that comes down to the drug war, you know, to the extent that, that marijuana is a, is, is a big piece of that you know, then we can at least get rid of the marijuana portion of the problem. Uh, admittedly, it doesn't solve it entirely because cocaine is another huge piece in, in Central and South America, well, South America anyway. So it, I, I think these are all important things to, 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 to bring into the, you know, into the discussion here. We, the thing we learned with prohibition was that um, it doesn't really work, right? And, and I think we've learned the same, same thing with the drug war. With sort of the drug war too, and this is, this is going to be a weird question, but I think it gets at something. So I, I made the big bold claim that the only reason marijuana is illegal is because of racism. So I started my spiel. And none of you seem to disagree with me. Well, there, there, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of people who would disagree with you, but um, getting back to that, uh, uh, what's his name, Adam? The, the guy that starts, starts with an A back in the back in Yeah, the Harry, Harry Aslinger. Yeah. Aslinger. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you read his stuff and Paul, you said it's really too, too racist to, to, to read on our podcast. Well, it's true. I mean, the stuff is blatantly racist that it's, you know, that, that, that marijuana is mostly associated with, you know, blacks and Hispanics and, and you know, things like that. He had a lot of those kinds of things to, to, to say in, in remarkably racist tones. And yeah, so it was clearly a, a factor way back when, and, and it, it seems to have ramifications uh, that, that, that continue. Now, I think there's a lot of people who would say there's other motivations also. But then my question is, I know people will say that there are other motivations. That's called a dog whistle. We should do a whole episode on that. But something that makes me wonder if it has some credence is marijuana isn't just illegal in the United States. It's illegal in Mexico. It's illegal in most of Africa. It's illegal in most, in all of Asia. I think all of Asia. And it's way more illegal, like near death penalty sentences for for marijuana in right. so, places I mean, like Singapore and Korea. Why is it illegal everywhere? I would say it's a little bit reductive just to flatly say that the only reason marijuana is illegal is racism. Now, I think there are racist reasons why marijuana is illegal, but it's it's mainly a Machiavellian purpose, right? Like what actually the reasoning behind it is that pl it's politically convenient for conservative movements, especially in the late 1960s, to be able to find a way to tie the growing progressivism movements to a substance that you could then illegalize, therefore removing those particular political movements agency and legitimacy in view of the public, right? So I mean, th there's, there's a more 
methodological underpinning to why in the United States specifically they would legalize marijuana because it was such a large, you know, part of the hippie movement, of the liberalized movement of that time, which is why Nixon in particular found it very politically convenient to target marijuana. But if we're talking about globally, there actually are some pretty obvious reasons for that. And they usually come from one of two places. One is fallout from that political movement in the 60s in the US that I was talking about, because the other major event we're thinking of is the Red Scare at that point, wherein we have the entire world post-World War II being divided up into Soviet allies and American allies in this growing global Cold War. For that reason, a lot of policies from either Soviet Russia or from the McCarthy's America find themselves trickling into smaller satellite countries that are reliant on them for funding. We will give you funding, but one, you have to be a capitalist, and two, you have to adopt some of our laws. And often some of those laws would be the legalization of marijuana. Nixon isn't going to give you money, Ghana, unless you also then say you have to illegalize marijuana as well. That's one fallout. The other is actually much older, but very similar. And that would be that in Asia, one of the reasons why it is so much more illegal is the legacy of the opium wars. I can't do the opium wars in the five minutes that I have right here, but long story short, the drugs are very effective at pacifying populations who are not used to using those drugs. And the British learned this when they wanted to get into the port of Hong Kong and realized that they have from the Afghan territories, large swaths of opium. So they began importing it through Hong Kong to the greater Chinese state in hopes of pacifying the population in a very evil racist colonialist way. So again, yeah, you could say it's, you know, because of racism, but it was for some more complex reasons than that. Opium is a sedative in this, in not a similar exact way, in modern science, but when you think of it pop culturally, the way that opium was being used back in the day is actually somewhat similar to the way that we think of marijuana. It was a recreational drug that was known to be used for pleasure, that was known to be used to relax you and to help you have a good time. Heads of state back in this era of Chinese history would often have opium dens where they would go to think about their political maneuvers because it calmed them. It's an anti-anxiety, right? It would be depicted as like this kind of lavish luxury drug. So it had a lot of similarities to how marijuana does. And obviously the Asian continent, if you didn't know, as a result of British colonialism has had a lot of real, let's say negative sentiment towards those times. It didn't go great for those being colonized. And as part of decolonialization that started happening at the fall of the British Empire really set in post-World War II, a lot of those countries began having very firm anti-drug laws because they were seen as anti-colonialist laws. They were incredibly popular because they were part of that shared legacy of reclaiming what the ultimate kind of like Eastern culture was from what the British had tried to force upon it and then the American shortly after them. So there is a complex history there, But again, you could say that law is also because of racism, albeit in a long winding way and as part of a counterinsurgency to it, but it was ultimately a law because of racism. So when we say that marijuana is ultimately only illegalized because of racism, that is a global policy. Well, th I'm glad you knew so much about that because I've heard some of that a little bit, but none of it ever really made sense everywhere. I mean, there's, look, like, there's a lot of nuance being countries. lost. That, that, that was a crash coursified version of the opium wars and how yeah. they struggle. I was going to make that argument. I'm like, oh man, I'm glad Chloe, Chloe's making this argument a lot better than I could. Jeez. <laughs> well, and you did such a good job that I actually want to move on to a different point that I think is important for us to squeeze in in the last couple of minutes here. And that is the okay. issue of, 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 of driving high. Um, so it seems that that rates of of, uh, of deaths in you know states that have legalized marijuana uh, do go up a little bit from you know impaired driving, both both drunk and mar marijuana. So that's something we got to figure out from a societal perspective. Yes, let's you know let's legalize this, but let's you know make sure that we are emphasizing that you know you you, you don't consume and then drive. <laughs> I think this largely falls into what they were saying about the schizophrenia paper I was saying earlier. But actually, I'll, I'll let you two handle it. Well, you it agree? It's the drunk driving thing again, right? Like if we can't, if when you are, if you're talking about the impairedness of reaction time, alcohol impairs you on average significantly worse. Now you can get into like, what is two drinks versus one puff? What is two puffs versus a full beer? Like I'm sure that there are various ways you could try to meter it out if you wanted to be very pedantic. Yeah, but um, but but you don't have to be pedantic about this person died in this crash and there was a large amount of, of, uh, of some sort of chemical in the driver's, uh, you know. Blood. Correct, and I'm, I'm not suggesting it's harmless. I, I'm merely saying that there is a pretty easy one-to-one -one comparison we can draw between driving under the influence 
of marijuana and driving under the influence or DUI, which is the charge we label for driving mm -hmm. while intoxicated by alcohol, right? Like they're very similar in that way. So if we feel we are successful in legislating alcohol, there's no reason we can't feel successful legislating marijuana. And if we don't feel successful in legislating alcohol for driving, well, that's maybe more of a question about how we inform the populace about their ability to function right. than it is a matter of like the substance itself, if that yep. makes sense. Yep. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're not going to make alcohol illegal. So obviously, and, not again, you know, the, 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 the drunk driving numbers are, are substantially higher than the, than the driving high numbers. But it is something that I think it's important to include in the conversation, because if we're going to have, you know, safe and legal marijuana, well, the safe part includes making sure that people aren't killing each other on the roads. Absolutely. And, and this speaks to a need for diverting money for education. I mean, because how often were accidents happening previously somebody was baked but because marijuana wasn't exactly on the radar to be checked for because it wasn't legalized uh, it was something that we still have a hard time verifying but now because we have this apparatus and the apparatus in place to be able to check to see if somebody's high and, and put that into the administrative checklist now that becomes something that can be a part of the statistics that maybe were being hidden before and so we need to do the work to be able to pay for the science to verify if these rates are actually increasing and if they are increasing well, then absolutely notifying the public and then creating discourse and a variety of, of different uh, educational initiatives to be able to make it clear to students what are the real costs associated with abuse of this drug because just like anything else, it can be abused and we do ourselves a disservice in our attempts to be able to justify the usage of this, of this most of the time benevolent plan uh, to anthropomorphize it a little bit, but we do ourselves a disservice by not focusing in on what the downsides can be as well. So I'm right there with you, Alan, we do need to do the work, but I think overall we, uh, we just need to make sure that we're not uh, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, if, if that would be the, the point here. So legalize nope. it. Nope. <laughs> All right. Of so course. we're about out of time here and I did promise Adam the last word. So Here's a special question just for you. Because Chloe was saying that the legalization is inevitable, but in my, I first pointed out that this is all political just so the Democrats can try and get, gain some favor in Georgia. Why do you think we're legalizing it right now in the midst of a pandemic when there are clearly other things we'd be happy to see Congress <laughs> doing? Well, I mean, I, uh, I think that they know that they're not going to pass anything. Uh, but realistically, I mean, what a, bet, what a what kind of great time to legalize. I mean, we're all on our couches watching Netflix already. And you may, might as well rip a bond bowl and watch some uh, My Hero Academia in the meantime, right? I mean, like, come on. Uh, but re realistically speaking, uh, it's, it, the headwinds have been blowing. I mean, two thirds of our two thirds of our states, more than two thirds, only I think only five left don't have it medicinally or fully legalized at this point. The, we are taking a look at 60 plus percent of the country is in favor of legalization and a much higher amount are in favor of, of medicinal legalization. And so this is democracy at work where on the fringes where the House is much more democratic and democratically elected by proportion then the Senate, you're going to start seeing the influence of people's interested, I mean, interests percolate there. And that's really what this comes down to is that people want to see a change. And that's what we're seeing. All right. There was a lot more we wanted to talk about. This was a great episode, if I do say so myself. Thank you very much, Adam, for joining us. And thank you, of course, to the rest of my panel, as always. This is Ben Copperfield, signing out.